All right, thanks for coming today to uh, the Biblical Sexuality class. Uh, last week we worked through a foundational understanding of what it means to be um, born and made in the image of God and how that flows out through our uh, sex being a male and female. And with that foundational understanding of humanity, um, our gender displays should reflect whether or not we are male or female. And we're now transitioning into a discussion of sex. With that in mind, I wanted to let you know that this is going to be a more explicit topic of discussion. So if that makes you uncomfortable or draws out something that you might not want to listen to, you're, you're welcome to step out. Um, that'd be fine. Um, so understanding how things uh, are used and what they're for is often the moment that something's eye-opening and it's helpful for actually understanding what this thing is used. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I had a couple roommates and one of them moved out and as people are want to do, they, they leave stuff in your house. And I saw this thing, it was round and it was made of silicone and it was bright orange and it had a little white thing sticking out on it. And it was in the drawer in the kitchen and I didn't know what it was. And being the single bachelor that I was, I just left it in the drawer instead of throwing it out. And then a few months later, I was watching a YouTube video and I saw somebody cooking and they had used this little egg ring to crack an egg into on the skillet. And I realized at that moment, that is what that thing was in my drawer. It was an egg ring. And so once I had this understanding of what the thing was for, it became useful to me. The thing that had been useless, I didn't know what it was, just sitting in my drawer, had become useful. I could use it to crack an egg and keep a little perfect egg ring. And I think the same thing could be said for our sexuality and sex. Knowing what it's for is going to help us to use it properly. Knowing the purpose of sexuality is going to aid us in understanding how it's to be used. And so that's where we're going to start today. So the question for you, and I want us to think about this, is what do we think is the purpose of sexuality? Specifically, what do you think the purpose of sex is? Now, I know that's a basic question, but I want to make sure we're all starting off on the same starting point. So in general, what do people think is the purpose of sex? Yeah, what does that mean? Babies. Reproduction, okay. Yep. Anything else? Is there any other? Intimacy? In what sense? How, what do you mean by that? In a lot of areas, it's like you learn more about your partner through Yep. Definitely, you learn more about your partner, you make babies through it. Anything else? Fulfillment and happiness. Yeah, I think that's a, a, big, a big thing. It's like pleasure can come from sex. And so those, are the, those three things here are what I'm going to start with first. Um, and I think through scripture and through culture, we see all three of those things coming out. Um, the, the idea of pleasure is what I'm going to start with, is why sex has become such a big deal in culture and why so many people wrap their identities up in it because they want to be able to find themselves satisfied through a sexual relationship. It's become a stumbling block for so many people because that idea is, I need this thing in order to be satisfied. A body may demand pleasure, and so sexuality is, by, is the means by which your pleasure 
is attained. And that idea that sex is pleasurable, is, brings us happiness, is not inherently wrong. And the Bible makes that clear. In, in, in the Song of Solomon, we can see through that whole book that there's this idea of the, the husband and the wife pursuing each other. They're longing for each other. And it ultimately brings satisfaction and pleasure for them. So sexuality can bring pleasure. And then, as Kyle mentioned, it brings children. Another purpose for sex is to produce offspring. It's a biological fact that having children comes from that. And we see in uh, Genesis 1.28 that it's a biblical purpose. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's not really possible to fill and multiply the earth unless you have babies. So we wouldn't be able to continue as a species if we weren't able to produce and reproduce. So then we have that one. And then last one, I think, is an important one that was not brought up, marital union. So marriage is a piece of sex. It's supposed to draw you to, towards another person. It draws you into forming a marriage relationship. Sexuality is the reason that people find other people attractive. It's the reason you're attracted to another person. And then in the U.S., the, we might see that marriage rates are declining, but we still have a positive view of marriage. It's seen as a, a way of improving your social standing, your economic standing. Um, it's a st stabilizing factor for families. All these different things are why, why we see sex as a good thing for marriages. Um, but then Genesis also points to that with Adam and Eve. God made Eve from Adam's rib. And he brought her to him. But upon seeing her, Adam said the first love poem in Genesis 2. The man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the, his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The sexuality of Adam and Eve led both of them to becoming one flesh through marriage. Our sexuality is purposed to draw us towards marriage. And so we have these three things, and you may be sitting here as a single person thinking, that doesn't really help me. None of those things give me a reason right now for why I have feelings in my heart and why I desire to have sex. You're currently unable to act on your sexuality because you don't have a spouse. Or maybe you're struggling with same-sex attraction and you likewise don't know if you'll ever be able to properly express your sexuality in a biblical way. I want to encourage you that those things are not the whole truth. There's something more. In Sex and, Suprem and the Supremacy of Christ, John Piper makes a compelling case that sex has a deeper purpose. He writes, the ultimate reason, not the only one, why we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. And that's gonna be our first point here. He continues, the language and imagery of sexuality are the most graphic and most powerful that the Bible uses to describe the relationship between God and his people, both positively when we're faithful and negatively when we're not. The question arises then, 
how does this make God more deeply knowable? There are several different parts in the Bible that we're going to kind of work through, different passages. Uh, John Piper in his book works through these same ones, and I figured we should follow that same path. So he starts with Ezekiel 16, and this is a long chapter, and we don't have enough time to go through everything in it. But I'm going to break it out into different chunks. Some of them are longer chunks than other, others, but we're going to work through that. And I'm going to ask questions about the text, and we're going to engage with that and, and process through it and see what that helps us understand this concept that sex, sex helps us to more deeply know God. Um, as a bit of context for Ezekiel 16, God had chosen Israel to be his people. He had made a covenant with them, and he had told them in this covenant that he would be their God and they would be his people. And in Ezekiel 16, that reference, uh, that relationship is referenced there. So we got here Ezekiel 16, 4 to 9. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you. He's referencing Israel here. Nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you, and when I passed by you and saw you, wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So as we read through this and reread through this, what ideas do you see from that? What things come out from this first section? Mm-hmm. In what way do you see that? God's love. Definitely. God sees the, he's loving them in the fact that they were nothing and he picked them up out of that. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that is going to be hit on a little bit later, too. Uh, we're definitely going to see some more idea that Israel is this wife. Any other things you guys pick up? I think one of the, the big pieces, too, is that there's this innocence to the love in the fact that Israel was, was tiny. They were small. They were young. And God picked them up and saved them. And they were vulnerable. They were weak. And God helped them out of that. So in this section, we see that God was calling Israel. And then the next one, uh, 16, 11 to 17, um, we see God continuing that call. 
and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. Once again, what question for you is, what do we see from Israel, and what do we see from God here? Yep. Both sides, we see Israel's faithlessness and we see God's faithfulness in that. Yeah. In connection with the last passage, there's a sense in which God is the beauty of Israel. And then, so he's given beauty, and you see on this point in the first half, and then the second half, they turn away from God, mm-hmm. and it's that, it's, it's a loss of beauty. Yeah. Yeah, God, God is Israel's beauty. He gave it to them, and they, they scorned him. They turned away from him in that. I think, too, there's this language that we can pick up. Like, the word whore is used, whoring, and that can fix or get us our, our eyes fixated on this sexuality concept because we can start to see how God might feel using those terms. If these are, that's a strong language to be using toward Israel, his, his chosen people, calling them a whore. And... In our mind, we can see God must be feeling so betrayed, so, dis- so much disgust towards this, this, this nation whom he had chosen, he had covenanted with, yet they were turning away from him. He had rescued them. He gave so much to them only for them to turn away from him. And then we see God's response to this infidelity in this next set of verses 16, 36 to 38. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. God's wrath was great toward Israel. Sexuality is is really a defining characteristic of this anger and the wrath, the source of it, because their betrayal led to judgment. They turned, they they were adulterers towards God, and God poured out his wrath on them through Syria, through Babylon. These nations, they came and they, they, they tore them down. God was bringing his vengeance out as a scorned husband would. And Israel's adultery is likened to their immorality. As we see this connection between, God's sexu- uh, between uh, sexuality and knowing God through this, 
these different pieces, they fit together and they show us that, that our sexuality is purposed toward knowing God better. We're starting to see and move towards this concept. But that's not the end for Israel here. There's, there's something more. In Ezekiel 16, 60 and 62 to 63, this is what God says. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and become founded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Any, any words in this last section that stand out to you? Covenant? Yep. Atonement? Yep, that's another one. Everlasting. Everlasting. There's an eternal nature to it. Yeah, and I think another one is the shame for shaming because of your shame. So these different pieces are, are things that are are helpful for us to, to really understand that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, despite what we were seeing earlier, that they, they turned from God. That's illustrated through this relationship of a husband and wife, the wife turning from her husband. God was willing to redeem Israel. Despite being cheated on, God pays the price to atone for them, to atone for their sins. And throughout this whole chapter, there's this intersection of our sexuality and our relationship with God. Sexuality makes God knowable because it expresses the extent of his love for us as well as how damaging our sin is to that relationship. The same longings that we have for another person, those should point us and help us to see the longings that God has for us. The hurt and pain that comes from a wife betraying her husband as Israel betrayed God is the betrayal God feels when we sin. When we choose to sin, we're choosing something else. We're choosing adultery over God. But there's one significant difference here than in our context. God does and he can atone for the sin, for the unfaithful partner. It says there, when I atone for you, that's fulfilled in Christ's work on the cross. Our sins are atoned through the work of God through his son. And as a quick aside, I know that there are people who struggle with sexuality. You may be struggling with understanding why you have certain sexual attractions. You may pr be praying, well, I wish and I hope in God, why don't you just zap away these, these desires in my heart? But I want to encourage you that there is a reason for them. There is a purpose for them. They help you grasp God's love. And they also help you understand the relational damage that comes when you choose to sin, when you willingly and, and, and you choose to disobey him and turn away from him. Our sexuality helps us to better grasp the depth of God's mercy towards humanity in giving his son to pay our debt. And this is Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, which uh, Dr. Kimball was preaching through last week. Um, and in this section, we see that God's love for humanity was made clear with Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And this sacrifice is reflective of the way a husband is supposed to love his wife and way wives and husbands are supposed to live out their sexuality. 
As we see here, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The way a husband and wife relate to each other should reflect the way that Jesus relates to the church. The most intimate relationship in God's creation, that of a husband and a wife, it demonstrates how every believer is supposed to relate to God. Our relationship with Christ is defined in marriage terms. And the way we use our sexuality, specifically sex, is going to help us draw closer to God or push us away from him, which is the second point we have here. If you are not a person with sexual feelings, words would not fully describe and fully help you understand how deeply God loves you, how deeply you should be turning to him and loving him and understanding who he is. It helps you understand how deeply God cares for you, how much he loves you. You can use your sexuality to grow in appreciation of God's love for you. The feelings that you have, though, they're a foreshadowing of what is to come. And you shouldn't look down on those feelings themselves. Transition here to Revelation 19, 6-9. It describes this marriage supper of the Lamb. This event, this great day of rejoicing, is a celebration for all of those who are in Christ and know him relationally. Jesus purchased us with his blood, and he brought us into a union with him. And this union, it parallels marriage that we're marriages that are currently happening on earth. It reads, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We had to talked about the idea of marriage being this, this joy in, in the earlier passages with um, Ezekiel, with Israel. There is a, a wife, and this is the same peace that we're going to be experiencing too, in heaven one day through Christ, the celebration of the marriage supper with the Lamb. The joy that you experience with your spouse right now, or the joy that you wish you could experience with a spouse, they're a mere shadow of the infinite joy, the excitement, and the love that you will experience in eternity with God. Sex exists to create a longing and an expectation for the eternal bliss that's going to happen for all of those who have been saved by Christ. Even the most perfect sexual encounter that a married couple has is going to pale in comparison to the excitement and the happiness that will be experienced in heaven one day with the bridegroom, Jesus. And there's one last piece to this argument that I'll go through quickly. Um, the, in Genesis 4.1, there's this word new that is used to indicate that Adam and Eve had sex. Uh, the, the use of the word in Hebrew, it's yada. It, for the sexual act, it points to a, a deeper sense of understanding and knowing the person you're with, the, the connection that comes through the physical act of sex. 
when you have sex with someone, you grow closer and you become vulnerable. You open your life up to that person. And that's why God's provided the covenant of marriage as a safeguard for this. Because when you're vulnerable with somebody you're not covenanted with, it's going to create uh, difficulties down the line. You're, you're, you don't have the, the, the barriers, the guards, to keep you guys together when things are, are difficult. You're opening up yourself to another person in a way that, that needs that safeguard. Sex and deeply knowing someone goes hand in hand. But that doesn't mean anytime we see the word know in scripture that it's implying there was sex involved there. But we can understand that these concepts, the language that's used in this sense, it helps us understand that our relationship with God is, is deeper. It's like the act of sex and how we should be pursuing God and understanding who he is and loving him in that way. We don't look at our relationship with God as if it's in any way sexual, though. But the intimacy that comes through sexual relations, the longing that you have for the other person, the ecstasy that comes from the act of sex, that's going to push us and point us to truly knowing and understanding how God cares for us and how, how much he loves us. And this helps with framing the last verse we're going to look at. In Hosea 2, God is promising a restoration of his people. Like in Revelation 19, the language of marriage is used. Hosea 2, 19 to 20 states, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. I want to hone in on those last few words there. Know the Lord. I think this usage is the same type as it was in Genesis 4 between Adam and Eve. Knowing the Lord deeply is connected with your betrothal to him, with that marriage covenant that happens. The marriage relationship opens up the door for you to understand deeply who God is, how he loves you, what the depth of his relationship with you should be, you can have this scholarly understanding of God by reading through the text, but you don't really know God unless you have a relationship with him. In the context of this Hosea passage, knowing God is like knowing a lover. You only know who God is by having a deep sense of intimacy with him, faithfulness toward him. And the degree of that intimacy is connected through our sexuality. And that's where our, oh, I missed that last point there. Um, I'll leave that up. Um, this is where our definition of holy sexuality comes in. Uh, what I was mentioning last week in the uh, first week, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. I had to read that one and so I didn't flip it like I did last week. God doesn't want you to seek out sexual escape in your singleness via pornography, via same-sex relationships, via lust in your mind, or any other way of gratifying yourself. He wants your innermost longings, your innermost desires to point you to him. He wants you to turn to him with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. To find satisfaction in him, not in sex, not in your sexuality. And then for those who are married, you're not supposed to look outside your marriage to find sexual satisfaction, but to your spouse to loving him and to loving her 
in a manner that reflects Christ's love for the church. Your faithfulness to your marriage pictures the gospel, and it helps you push your worship towards God in a new way. It helps both spouses push themselves and understand who God is and how much he loves you. You can use that to push you to know God more. So as we've covered a lot of ground today through Ezekiel 16, Ephesians 5, and Revelation 19, um, to help us see that our sexuality and sex, they, they purpose, they're purpose not only for those, those first few things we were talking about, for happiness, pleasure, having kids, or, or making us become a, a marriage, a union. But more importantly, sex is purposed to better understand how God loves us and how we should understand and think about our sin. Our sin pushes us away from God, and it's an act of adultery towards him. In our final class next week, Joe is going to be closing us out by working through some practical ways to live this out, to live out these, these three things here. For both single people and married people, we, we need to have some practical steps for what to do. And next week, Joe's going to be working through that, and he's going to help us understand how we can practically live out chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Thanks.